Greetings and welcome. My name is James White, and we have been doing a series of studies concerning the Bible, its inspiration, its consistency, how to properly interpret it. And in today's study, we're going to be looking at the subject of the canon of Scripture, the canon of Scripture. That is, why does, for example, this English Bible that I have before me have 66 books in it? Why doesn't it have 50 books or 150 books? And who determined this? Many people have the idea that, that in essence, there were a bunch of elderly men a couple hundred years after the time of Jesus who, who sat around in a council and, and they said, okay, we now have the Gospel of Matthew. How many for the Gospel of Matthew? Okay, we've got that many votes. How many against the Gospel of Matthew? Okay, the Gospel of Matthew makes it in. Uh, how many for the Gospel of Mark? And, uh, and some just barely made it in and some made it in with a, a majority vote or something like that. The simple fact of the matter is that never happened. There was never a situation where some council of people sat down and each book was put out there and a vote was taken or anything of the kind. That never took place either for the Old Testament or for the New Testament. Historically, when we look at the Old Testament, we see that in that particular situation, as prophets would prophesy and their writings would be written down, later generations would preserve these writings and would see in them the Word of God. And later prophets would, for example, quote from or make reference to earlier prophets. The historical works, for example, record the discovery of the writings of Moses and, and the repentance that took place amongst the people of Israel as a result of that particular finding of the law of God. Once the last prophet came to the people of Israel, the prophet Malachi, even extra-scriptural, outside-of-the-Bible Jewish writings recognize that prophecy had ceased amongst the people of Israel. The spirit of prophecy had left at that point in time. And so, what we then see happening is about 400 years between that last prophet Malachi and the coming of Jesus Christ. The people of Israel were looking forward to the Messiah. And during that period of time, the people of Israel recognized that God had ceased speaking. Even though other books were being written at that time, those books themselves did not claim to be Scripture. They did not claim to have the prophetic message of God embedded within them. And so what happened was, for example, copies of the Old Testament books were laid up in the temple, in that holy place where sacrifices were made. And they were recognized as being the Scriptures. There was no visitation of angels from heaven. There was no thunder clouds and, and lightning bolts. And God did not provide a golden index carried down from heaven by angels. Instead, over the course of a period of time, God's people recognized what God had done in the inspiration of the Old Testament Scriptures. And when Jesus comes on the scene... There is no argument between Jesus and his opponents as to what was and what was not Scripture. In fact, there would have been many instances when Jesus brought the Scriptures to bear in debate that people would have said, oh, well, that's not Scripture. We didn't know that was Scripture if, in fact, there was any question at that point in time. But there wasn't any question at that point in time. And just as in the Old Testament, there was about 400 years between the completion of the last book and the time of Jesus Christ, during which time you see the people of God recognizing those Old Testament books, the same thing happens in almost the exact same time frame in the first 400 years 
of the history of the Christian church as well. We see the first collections taking place less than 200 years after the time of the birth of Christ, within just a little over 100 years of, of uh, the, the time of, of Christ's crucifixion. And we see almost complete unanimity by the very end of that time period, just as we have in the Old Testament. But you'll notice how I just presented this. I was looking back historically at what took place in history. And the vast majority of books, unfortunately, that deal with the subject of the canon, that's pretty much all they do. They look back on history and say, well, we can discern this, we can discern that, here's how the process went. I would like to present a different way of understanding the canon. That is, I'd like to start at a different place, and, and hopefully it will be helpful to you, though this is not a subject that a lot of Christians spend time thinking about, and I recognize that, but we do need to think about it because we pick up this Bible and we think, well, it's always had this form. It's always contained these things. And we need to recognize there was a process through which it went to come into the form that it now has. But who guided that process? That's the question. I would like to look at the issue of the canon from a theological perspective, not just looking back over history, but I would like to look at the canon from a theological perspective. I submit to you that the nature of Scripture determines the canon of Scripture. That is, the canon must be defined in the light of what Scripture is. If Scripture is, as we have said, God-breathed, therefore it is given for certain purposes by God. God has a certain purpose in giving us the Scripture. And just as He expended divine effort to inspire the Scriptures, so too, he's going to expend the same kind of effort to make sure that the church to whom he gives the Scriptures is able to know what the Scriptures are. This is a theological approach. So, the thesis I will seek to establish is this. The canon is an artifact of revelation, not an object of revelation itself. It is known infallibly to God by necessity and to man with a certainty directly related to God's purpose in giving the word to the church. The canon exists because God has inspired some writings, but not all writings. It is known to man in fulfillment of God's purpose in engaging in the action of inspiration so as to give to his people a lamp for their feet and a light to their path. The canon then has two aspects as we consider it in the light of its relationship to God's overall purpose in giving the scriptures. The first aspect, which I'll call canon one, is the divine knowledge and understanding of the canon. The second aspect, which I will then rather logically call canon two, is the human knowledge and understanding of the canon, which has been the primary focus of the debate down through the centuries. Hopefully, with this kind of differentiation, we'll be able to see through all the fallacious arguments that are sometimes put out there and see the real purpose that God has in giving us the Scriptures. Now, what do I mean when I say that the canon is an artifact of revelation? When an author writes a book, a canon of his or her writings is automatically created as a result of the simple consideration that he or she has written at least one book, but has not written all books that have ever been written. 
What do I mean by this? Well, I've written uh, about 24 books. And when I wrote my first book, I did not need to open up a file on my computer and title it The Canon of James White's Books. Automatically, as soon as I wrote the last word of that first book, a canon, a listing of my books came into existence. I didn't have to write one down. It automatically came into existence because I had only written one book. And I was the one, because I'm the author, who infallibly knew which books I had written. Now, other people may have had a very good knowledge. My wife, uh, my family may have had a very good knowledge of what book at that point I had written. But I and I only have infallible knowledge because, who knows, maybe when I was in my office alone, I was stealing material from somebody else. So only I really know what I myself have written. Others can have a good knowledge of that, but not an absolutely infallible knowledge. So if we were to use that analogy, then I, as the author, know Canon 1. And Canon 1 comes into existence simply because I've written at least one book, but obviously I did not write all books. And so it is limited. That's why the Canon comes into existence. In the same way, once God moved upon Moses to write the first of his books, the canon had come into existence. Now, that canon was going to change over time because the process of inscripturation, the process of inspiration took place over time. But God was the one who knew that. And God had absolute knowledge of that. And in reality, that canon one exists whether any human being on the planet ever had knowledge of it. It existed in God's mind. It existed in God's understanding. And even if no human being ever came to understand it, God knew what he had inspired. And if God didn't choose to tell his church what he'd inspired, I suppose he could have kept it a secret. God could have inspired all sorts of books. And if he didn't really want his people to know what he had inspired, if he was just playing games with us, uh, maybe there are 7,000 books in the Bible and we just don't know it yet. Or we'll never know it because God doesn't have a purpose in telling the church. But that's where you see the purpose of God giving Scripture coming together to inform us about the certainty we have of the canon is that there's no reason to believe that God would do something like that. There is no reason to believe that he would inspire all sorts of books. And then having expended all that effort, he doesn't bother to tell his people, well, here is what I have given to you. And so you see, it is that that connection between the two. Now, now, as God gave the Scripture to His people, then their knowledge of that canon would grow. God's knowledge, canon one, is always perfect. As soon as the last word of one of those books is written, He always knows infallibly exactly what He is inspired and what He is not. But then, as His purpose is revealed to give to His people guidance, to give Scripture to His people then he begins to guide his people to come to understand what he has inspired in Scripture. And that's how Canon 2 grows. It grows over time. Just as Scripture is given over time, so too Canon 2 must grow over time. And the relationship that exists between inspiring Scripture and then leading God's people to know what Scripture is, is based upon one question. Does God have a purpose in giving the Scriptures to us. This is almost never, sadly, discussed when 
people talk about the canon of Scripture because they're just, they're just looking back down the corridors of time and saying, this is what happened. Instead of asking, what was God doing to reveal to his people what he himself was active in doing in inspiring and revealing the Scriptures? And if we believe God is a God of purpose, if, if we believe that he, he would put out so much effort to give us this, then why would he then leave us in ignorance as to what he's done? The same level of, of effort is going to be put forth by the Spirit of God in that context to let us know, to make sure that we know what the Scriptures truly are. And so, is there a promise in Scripture? Does the Bible tell us that God has a purpose for the Scriptures? Well, we've already looked at one text that would seem to indicate this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 say, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, if it is God's purpose that the men of God in the church be able to train in righteousness, to be able to, to teach, to reprove, to correct, well, they have to know what's God breathed, don't they? They have to have access to the Scriptures. If the man of God is to be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then there must be some means by which he can have access to the Scriptures themselves. And so here is one promise, one reason why God would give to us the Scriptures. But there's another one that comes from uh, even the Old Testament Scriptures in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 9 through 11. Here we read these words. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 9 through 11. What do we read in these words? What, what do these words mean to us? Notice that what he's saying is his word will never go forth and be empty. It will not fail to accomplish everything that he desires. God has a desire, a purpose for his word and what he wants it to accomplish. And so when it goes forth, it will not fail. He says, it will, without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it, it will not return to me empty. It will not fail in what I want it to do. And so if his intention is for his word to accomplish something amongst his people, then God's promise is it will, in fact, accomplish what I desire it to accomplish. But, of course, God's people have to know what it is for it to accomplish something in their lives. They have to know this is, this is divine revelation coming down to us, and this is God's voice speaking to us. But there are some other texts that I think speak directly to this particular point. For example, in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, we read the following. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Did you hear what Paul said? Whatever was written in earlier times, that's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, some of which had been written 1,400 years before the time of Paul. 
Notice what he says. It was written for our instruction. Now, he's not saying that it was not written for their instruction as well. But he is recognizing that there are certain elements, even of the Old Testament revelation, that have not come to full fruition and understanding until their fulfillment in the ministry of Christ. And he sees that in what was written in earlier times, there we have our instruction. God knew that the church would exist, and he knew that he had a purpose in providing to us in the Scriptures a sure foundation upon which we could stand. Here is a promise that that just didn't just happen. God intended it to be that way so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So God's purpose was that the Scriptures might give us encouragement, might cause us to persevere. Well, if that's what God wants to do, is God going to fail to do that? Can God fail to, to provide to His people His Word? What We have to be able to know what the Scriptures are for this to be fulfilled in our lives. And so God is going to expend the effort, the divine energy, to make sure that we know what the Scriptures are. Here's another promise from Scripture. This is from 1 Timothy 4.16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. This word teaching, sometimes translated doctrine, appears often in Paul's epistles to Timothy and is one of the four terms used in 2 Timothy 3.16 regarding the duties of the church leader that by the God-breathed scriptures, he is enabled to perform these things. Hence, Paul explicitly teaches that the divine purpose in the writing of Scripture included the future instruction and teaching of believers in the church, resulting in their being encouraged so that they might have hope. This was God's purpose in giving the Scriptures to us. This is why He's preserved it over all these generations. That's why even to this day, despite the many, many people who've tried to destroy the Christian Scriptures down to the centuries, yet today they still exist and they have been translated into almost every language on the face of the earth. Here's another good example of one of these promises, this time from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happen to them, referring to the Old Testament people, these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Here again, what does Paul tell us? We can look at what happened in the Old Testament. We can look at what was recorded for us in those inspired scriptures, and we can see their examples for us. We can derive understanding from what happened to them so that we might not fall into the same traps. He says they were written, not just that these things happened for our instruction. We can, you know, it's always good to learn about, uh, you know, from what people fell into problems before. You know, it's, it's sort of like in my own family. My, uh, my daughter is younger than my son. And when you have a younger child, they watch and see what happens to the older child when they get in trouble, and they avoid those things for themselves. It's a good way of instruction. Paul isn't just saying, well, you know, avoid the problems they ran into. Notice he says, they were written for our instruction. Were they not written for the people of time? Yes, they were. But the Scriptures are bigger than just simply a message to someone at one time. They have a greater fulfillment than that. And Paul sees this and he says, They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 
And so we have a promise in the text of Scripture that God has a purpose in giving the Scriptures to us. And so since we have that promise, then we can from that point move forward to saying God is going to make sure that His people know what the Scriptures are. Now, people would say, well, but He needs to do that in a, in a special supernatural way. He needs to have, have angels come down with golden indexes and, and uh, maybe He needs to you know, have lightnings and thunderings and things like that. Well, He didn't do that for the Old Testament. There was never a time where angels came down and provided the Old Testament canon. And yet, as we saw in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus held men accountable to what was written in the Old Testament text as if God himself had spoken it to them. And in all of his disputes, you never find a situation where any of Jesus' opponents say, oh, well, that, that doesn't matter to me because that's not a part of Scripture. That never happens. Now, some people like to point out, well... The Jews did have some discussions. There was this council of Jamnia, you see, and, and uh, they did have some discussions of the canon. You know, there never really was such a thing as what's called the council of Jamnia. There was a college, a, a meeting of rabbis at Jamnia. We're not even sure when it took place. And, and basically what they did is they had a discussion, sort of a debate, uh, about just a couple of books of Scripture. They were not any of the major books of Scripture, but they were, uh, for example, Esther, which does not mention the name of God. They, they had a discussion about whether these books were canon Scripture, and they didn't change anything. They were already considered to be canon Scripture, and they certainly didn't think they could throw them out. But there was no situation where they met at Jamnia, and, and they had no idea what the canon Scripture was. That simply never took place. And the same thing is true with the New Testament. Never did the people of God think that God had abandoned them or that God had given to them the ability to determine what Scripture was. There was never any council that had the arrogance to sit around and say, well, by the authority vested in us, we are going to determine the council, the, the canon of Scripture. Uh, some people, for example, very erroneously say it, the Council of Nicaea determined what the canon of Scripture was. Never took place. They, hadn't, they didn't say anything about it. In fact, the first full writing of the New Testament canon that we have uh, comes from the Bishop of Alexandria. His name was Athanasius, and he himself put it out. And even when he did that, he did not say, well, I as a bishop have this authority to do this. No, he was reflecting what the Christian people had already experienced just as it had happened in the Old Testament where over a period of time the people of God had come to recognize the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, the same thing happened in the New Testament as well. So that when there was finally a listing of the entire canon of Scripture at the councils of Hippo and Carthage in 393 and 397, those canons, those, those councils were not saying we somehow are determining what is Scripture for the entirety of the Christian world. They never made that claim. In fact, those particular uh, councils were not even what are called ecumenical or worldwide councils. They were only local councils. And so never, even though you'll hear this all the time, you'll see it written in books, Whereas this council got together and determined the canon of Scripture, that never took place. But what God did do is over periods of time, He expended the same kind of effort to make sure that His people knew what the Scriptures were as He, in fact, had expressed in inspiring the Scriptures in the first place. And this is the foundation upon which we can have true assurance that we have what God would have us to do, is that He is a consistent God. 
And therefore, he is going to expend the same effort to make sure that we know what Scripture is as he did in inspiring it. Here we see the theological foundations of the canon of the Bible. Thank you very much.